Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. If debit is your go-to card, Discover thinks it's time you get rewarded too. So check out Discover Cashback Debit, a game-changing checking account with cashback on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Cashback isn't just for credit cards anymore. Whether it's a movie date, flea market find, or midday latte, you can start earning cashback. And did I mention there are no fees, period? Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashback debit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hello, everybody. This is Helen Johannesson from Helen's Wines. I am your host. I have been all over the world working on wine and training with some of the best chefs. You might know them, my business partners, John and Vinny. And this is Wine Face, my podcast where we take everything all the experts know and we're breaking it down for you in an easy, digestible, snackable way. Maybe you love food and maybe you love wine or maybe you just want to know more. Maybe you just want to look good for your friends. Mm -hmm, I see you. No, either way, I'm here for you. And if you want to find me in person, you can find me at Helen's Wines. I have two locations, one on Fairfax in Los Angeles and one in Brentwood. Or you can find me in the World Wide Web, Helen'sWines.com or on Instagram at Helen's Wines. But today on Wine Face, it is champs for my real friends. What the fuck is champagne anyway? What is champagne? I mean, we hear about it all the time. I feel like there's a whole pomp circumstance. There's an allure. There's a mythology. It is associated with Robin Leach, champagne wishes and caviar dreams, or was it champagne problems? I don't even know, but you know, lifestyles of the rich and famous. It is associated with decadence, celebration, I mean, been talked about, sung about, rapped about. I know Notorious B.I.G. is juicy. Now we sip champagne when we're thirsty. I remember hearing that line when I was a kid in New York, and I was just like, man, they're going to get dehydrated. <laughs> but I think it symbolizes that like champagne's expensive. You just sip it if you're thirsty when you've become successful. Big pun associates it with some romantic times, you know, in his song, Hot tub, popping bubbly, rubbing your spot, love, got you screaming, punish me. All right, you guys all know what I'm talking about. Anyway, champagne has a problem, I think, because a lot of people don't understand anything about champagne or they think they know what champagne is or to them, all sparkling wine is champagne. Today, we are just talking about champagne specifically. And to be a champagne, you need to be from the region of champagne in France. So it is a place and it is site-specific with specific terroir. It is carved up into many other different locations. But I think that's the thing. Let's get on the right foot about champagne being champagne. And the history is really, really, really 
crazy. Let's just break it down because the more you know, knowledge is power. And also swinging into the holiday season, it's like everyone's like, let's pop a bottle of champagne. A lot of people think that it's going to give you a headache. And I just want to talk about that really quick because a lot of cheap champagne, like that Andre bullshit, I don't even know if they label that champagne, but there is a lot of champagne that will give you a headache. You know why? Because it's made badly. It's bad champagne. It's real, real bad. We're talking about dope ass champagne today. We're talking about the stuff that kind of blows your mind and it doesn't all taste the same. And this is different from sparkling wine. It's different from a Cremant. This is not Prosecco. It's not Cava. We've talked about a lot of different sparkling wines on the podcast so far, but this is about champagne. There's a really, really amazing history. But before we dig into that, I just want to talk about sort of what the deal is with the region as far as like how tightly regulated and controlled it is, because it's kind of fascinating. Champagne, it's it's a regulated area. It's within the AOC uh, system. There are specific grape varieties that are approved. So you cannot grow or, or you could grow it, but you can't call something champagne if it's made from grapes that are not these grapes. Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, Pinot Meunier. Those are the three most popular, most prevalent. Most champagne is made from either one or three of these grapes. So Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, Pinot Meunier. But then there's four other grape varietals that are street legal to put into a bottle of champagne. Pinot Blanc, Pinot Gris, Arban, and Petit Meslier. But for all intents and purposes, if we're just doing a 411 on champs for your real friends, you should really think about champagne as being comprised of three grape varietals, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, and Pinot Meunier. And something that's really important is to understand that it could sometimes be a blend of all three. It could be a blend of two, or it can be single varietal. Now, when it is all Chardonnay, it's called Blanc de Blanc. When it is all Pinot Noir, it's called a Blanc de Noir. So normally, like if you've been listening to this podcast and you're like, wait a minute, skirt, let's pump the brakes, HJ. When you talk about Pinot Noir, usually it's either a rosé or a red wine. But in Champagne, my friends, when you have a wine made from Pinot Noir that is not a rosé, but it is a Champagne, it's called a Blanc de Noir. It's basically a white wine being made from a red skin grape. And then usually it's kind of a unicorn to have 100% Pinot Meunier, but it is out there. Those are going to be the most famous. And a lot of the big, big famous houses of Champagne, which we're going to get to later in the podcast, you know, your Krugs, your Vouves, your Dom Perignons, they're usually a blend of Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. And sometimes there's a little bit of Pinot Meunier in them. But most champagne producers are going to want to highlight when it's one varietal only. So Blanc de Blanc, Blanc de Noir are going to be the most famous. They are very OCD about pruning the vines. The only approved pruning methods are Royat, Chablis, Guyot, Val de la Marne. Like, I know this all sounds like I'm speaking French to you, but they're OCD about pruning. We're going to come back to that. There is a maximum permitted yield per hectare. So you're not allowed to grow more than a certain amount of vines that will produce a limited amount of grapes, which means it, it limits the production. There's also a maximum permitted press yield. So they are just putting controls in place of what you can grow, how much you can produce. 
There is a minimum potential alcohol content for all of the harvested grapes, secondary fermentation in the bottle, and minimum periods of maturation on the lees. So that means that to make champagne sparkling, it has to go through a secondary fermentation, right? So the first fermentation is when you're converting, the yeast is interacting with the sugar. Hopefully it's wild native yeast, but in champagne, a lot of times it's not. I'm going to be honest. There's some people who are using wild indigenous yeast, but this is kind of a crazy area where natural wine is sort of like dipping its toe in. And a lot of it is steeped in tradition, but has a lot of controls in it. So secondary fermentation is when you have the bubbles starting to be created. After it's be- the first fermentation has turned the grape juice into alcohol, the secondary fermentation is creating the bubbles. And there is a minimum period of maturation on the leaves, which means it's maturing with the dead skin cells, not skin cells, grape cells. What the hell, dead skin cells? Where is my mind? 15 months for non-vintage champagne and three years for vintage champagne. So another thing you got to know about champagne is when you're looking at a wine list and before all the information about that champagne, it says NV. The NV stands for non-vintage. And I would say most champagne is non-vintage champagne. And part of the reason that they do that is usually there's more than one vintage blended into a bottle, which actually is pretty dope and makes the champagne better. Or, you know, they only put the vintage on the bottle when it's in outstanding years. So there's minimum aging requirements, which is cool. It's crazy, but there's also some new rules that have come out since the 70s and it's constant evolution, but there's new quality improvement measures that include the following Thanks. In 1978, there were regulations put in place to govern the training and pruning of vines, their height, spacing, and planting density. The aim was to optimize fruit quality through high-density, low-yield vineyards. Bananagrams. In 1984, there were rules put in place forbidding the bottling of wines until the second day of January following the harvest. In 1991, There were rules about mandatory approval for all press centers. And then in 1993, press yields were set at 102 liters of must per 160 kilograms of grapes. So all of this is to say is that we have this very high-end, meticulous beverage, champagne, that is being tightly regulated from all different angles. But before we get into the politics of champagne today, I think we should start with a little history. Let's stoke the fires of our imaginations as we travel back in time to the region of Champagne circa 987, (laughs) so long ago, but in the history of the earth so short. So wine was starting to be made with the Champagne region in mind in 987 when Hugh Capet was crowned the King of France and he wanted to put it in as a tradition that Coronation Banquets would be more dope if it featured local regionally specific wines. So the first Champagne was actually not sparkling. It was a very, very, very lightish kind of pink red wine made from Pinot Noir. Before 987, before Hugh Capet and the Coronation Banquets, there were Romans were probably the first people planting vines in the Champagne region. So, you know, that shit was already popping, but they were not making sparkling wine either. 
You all might have heard of a champagne called Dom Perignon. Well, that guy was actually a monk, and he was around in the early days as well. So this is post Hugh Capet and 987 when like champagne was being regionally recognized as wine from Champenois, which is what it was called then, but wine from Champagne. And it was way after the Romans. There was this monk, Dom Perignon, or as I like to say, Dom Perignon. And he was around. He was super obsessed with pruning and with pressing. And he kind of was like maddened by the whole thing because it was around this time that the wines from Champagne were starting to get bubbly by accident. And it was like his life's work was to make his wines still, but his wines had bubbles. And so the Dom Perignon you know today was not what the actual Dom Perignon wanted it to be. All this is to say that the creation of champagne, the beverage, was actually an accident. All the winemakers were trying to rival this, their like sister area in France where that also grows Chardonnay and Pinot Noir, which is called Burgundy, which we've talked about before. But it's farther to the east and it's farther south. So a warmer climate. So all the vignerons in Champenois were like, yo, we want to make Chardonnay and Pinot Noir just as good as those Burgundy fools. But all of their envy could not get them ahead of the game. Champagne is much farther north, and it's challenging to make a quality red wine like one that you would get in Burgundy. It's just too cold for the ripening index to be good for that Pinot Noir. Um, and at the far extremes of sustaining viticulture, the grapes that far north struggle to ripen fully and often would have these bracing levels. They still do. They often have bracing levels of acidity and low, low sugar. The wines were lighter and thinner than Burgundy's. So like, despite all the envy, they could never really compete because of the climate. Furthermore, the winter temperatures would be super cold. And what happens when you're trying to make wine and the wine's in the fermentation process, so you pick the grapes in the fall and then you start the fermentation process, is the cold winter temperatures would prematurely halt the fermentation in the wine cellars in Champagne. So this is all why Champagne's by accident. So this is what's happening. They're picking the grapes, they're trying to make dope-ass Burgundy-style wine, but it's so cold Fermentation stops in the cellars, leaving dormant yeast cells. So these yeast cells are still active. They have not converted into alcohol. And what happens is those yeast cells would awaken in the warm sort of first rays of light in spring, and they would start the fermentation process over again. So one of the byproducts of fermentation, when you're at this stage, when you've gone through the alcoholic and now you're going into the secondary fermentation is the release of carbon dioxide gas, which if the wine is bottled and is trapped inside the wine, causes intense pressure. And the pressure inside those weak early French wine bottles often caused the bottles to explode, creating like insane amounts of havoc. So it was just like mayhem. Like imagine you're like Dom Perignon and you're like, fucking Burgundy. I want to make some dope ass Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. And then all of a sudden, like all your wine bottles are exploding because you don't understand, like they didn't have the knowledge about the carbon dioxide release and the secondary fermentation. So havoc was wreaked on all the cellars. If the bottles survived, like the ones that didn't spontaneously combust, the wine was found to contain bubbles. And it was something that the early Champenois winemakers were absolutely horrified by, and they thought it was a fault. 
I mean, can you imagine these days we're like, mouse, what a fault, or that's got too much volatile acidity. We're not, you know, these guys back then were like, oh my God, it's bubbly. Oh my God, it's fault. But as of the late 17th century, Champenois winemakers, most notably, you know, our good friend, Benedictine monk, Dom Perignon. But for the record, he lived from 1638 to 1750. They were still trying to get rid of the bubbles. But, you know, wines from Champagne had a tendency to fizz because of these early frosts and the drop in temperature and the incomplete fermentation during the manufacturing process. And so then the wine would begin to sparkle. But good for the Champenois. Because in the early 1700s, the Brits got a taste for this accidentally bubbly wine for all the aristocrats at court. So the French were horrified by it, but the Brits were like, hmm, fabulous. It was totally accidental for the most part in the beginning, but it was around the 19th century that a lot of stuff started getting intentionally figured out. I think everyone was like, okay, we're never going to be Burgundy. We're not equipped regionally with the climate to make still wines that are dope on a rope. So it was kind of in the mid 1800s that a lot of the most famous champagne houses were founded. Places like Krug, Palmery, and Bollinger. Also, sidebar, the craziest champagne I've ever had, no joke. And it was because this guy named but anyway, I'm not even getting into the story, but he was a scandalous wine collector who is actually now in jail because he counterfeit wine. He like befriended me like nine years ago as a sommelier friend and would invite me to all these fancy wine dinners. You know, he had a crazy elaborate wine cellar apparently. And he would always be like, what do you want to drink? And I always knew he'd bring old, old wine. And I was like, champagne. I mean, there were kind of rumors that he was like counterfeiting wine, but you can't counterfeit champagne because you can't open it, doctor it, remix it with something else. It would lose all of its bubbles. So he brought one night, I'll never forget it. It was at Kiesbacher in Los Angeles. I got off work at like 1030. I rolled over there and he had waited to open a Jerobom of 1942 Bollinger champagne. And let me tell you, that shit was bananas. It smelled like white truffles and chocolate, like white chocolate. And the bubbles were still intact and so alive. And I felt like I was on a magic school bus down the throat of history. Uh, you know, that shit was when World War II was happening. I mean, it was so insane. Anyway, thanks to Rudy, even though he's in jail for that lovely experience. But anyway, mid-1800s, all these houses were founded. And it was actually Veuve Clicquot that developed and sort of perfected the method champenois, which is what is used today, and it helps stabilize and streamline the process so it was not as accidental and now is more intentional. But it wasn't until 1936 that Champagne became an AOC designated area officially. Before 1936, it got a little rough and rugged because people like would be making sparkling wine and calling it champagne from areas outside the region. And to the point that some of the winemakers started to riot for like 20 years. And we're like, yo, designate us as an AOC. So when you see champagne on the label, it's actually from champagne. So they're bananagrams. But that is a brief yet long, yet brief history of champagne. I just think it's so fascinating. It's kind of like wrought and taut with all these twists and turns. For the most part, though, champagne is made up of a bunch of different 
areas. I kind of want to run through them. The, the AOC is broken down into a few different regions, and this is important. The overall region is called the Cote d'Or, right? It's where a lot of the champagne. So there's the Cote d'Or, there's the Aube, Siena Marne, but basically some of the most favorite areas or most famous areas are Cote Blanc, Cote de Cézanne, Troy, Cote de la Aube, Montagne de Rheim, so Rheim, like a lot of people, pretty famous, Val de la Arc, Val de la Vesle. Anyway, I'm tired of hearing me speak French. Maybe you aren't. I don't know. But it's very interesting because what I kind of want to get at is there are probably 40 different site-specific areas within Champagne for making Champagne. They all have kind of slightly different terroir, soil makeups. They are regionally specific. There's a shit ton of rivers that kind of run through this entire area. And why this is important is that for a very, very long time, there was Champagne that's made from these big Champagne houses that are basically sourcing grapes from different areas, and it's not site-specifically labeled. And I think that that is one reason why at the wine shop, we've really tried to make a big press for site-specific grower-producer champagnes. So highlighting champagnes that are specifically from Mesnil or from Avise or... I mean, you could be from anywhere, Cote de Bar, you know, all these different areas that have different expressions of terroir, where the Chardonnay and the Pinot Noir, the soil composition is slightly different, and they express themselves in entirely unique and different fashions. The politics of Champagne is that the big houses controlled the region and controlled the production for a very, very long time. In the 1950s till now, the production and sale of champagne like quadrupled or maybe even more. It went like Richter off the chain to become at such a higher level of production than ever before in history. And so it's kind of crazy when you start to think about there was a select group of houses controlling all of that production. When you scale something up, it doesn't mean that it's always done in the most thoughtful and best way. Now, I'm not trying to throw shade on champagne houses because it's not really a battle I want to fight. But the one thing I do want to say is there are the undercover champagne places. And that's really what I'm fascinated in getting people more into. So when we do our deep dive into champagne, which will probably be one episode, maybe we do it in a couple of weeks, we're going to break down the different regions of champagne and some of the best grower producer champagnes that are from those regions. Some of my favorites, just teaser alert, Guillaume Celos, Agrippar, I love Le Brun Saverney, Pierre Gerbet, Vilmar. It's a really fascinating time in Champagne, just to name a few, and we'll go deeper and deeper. But the one reason I want to put a big play on talking about Champagne is we're coming into the holiday season. And I have a lot of people who often are like, yeah, I want to do a gift or we, we do all these gift boxes at Helen's like we do so many. It's exciting. I love it. It's my favorite thing to do. But people are often afraid to give a champagne that doesn't have commercially recognized label. People feel more comfortable with a Veuve Clicquot or a Bilicar Salmon or something like this or Krug, you know, and not to say that those champagnes are bad. I'm just rooting for the underdog here because there's amazing farmers who are using organic farming practices. And now this is really key because it's very rare to find organic farming in Champagne. It's very cold. The conditions are challenging to work with. 
So one thing that I really want to champion and talk about, and we're going to get into our champagne 2.0, is who are these producers? Where are they making wine? What are the challenges? And how do we become more invested and fascinated in this craft outside of the big budget marketing that is fueling our perception of champagne in general? And with that note, I hope that everybody is popping bubbly somewhere, hanging, enjoying champagne. When we first opened Son of a Gun, we had no wine storage. There's literally a fridge and there was just no ability to have a wine list. We had a closet size office that we had to put all the liquor in because we had a full bar for the first time. And so John, Vinny and I were like, you know what? fuck it. Let's just do a champagne only wine list. And so I had a wine list of 25 different champagnes. There was a lot of people who were excited about it. People wrote about it. People came in and drank champagne because you can have champagne with so many different types of food. And the thing that you got to be careful with and why I want to go into a deep dive highlighting grower producer champagne is in the methods champenoise, which is the way that champagne is made, there's a process called dosage that is part of most champagne winemaking. You got to think about it. It's a cool climate. There's not a lot of sugar ripening in those grapes when they get harvested. And so the wine can be very acidic and very, very low sugar before it goes into its secondary fermentation. So after the first fermentation happens in champagne, dosage is added, which is a concentrated grape must sugar concentrate. It's not that mega purple, deep red, like it's not that scary shit. It's actually like something that the vigneron is making themselves, ideally. It doesn't add sweetness. It adds almost this lushness to the wine because that additional sugar helps kick off another fermentation for the champagne to then become bubbly. And that's when the champagne is sealed and they're put on racks and they're riddled. Now there's machines that will riddle the bottles, but basically the bottles spend like 15 months sort of with the top of the bottle at an angle, sort of like a, what would this be? It'd be like a 60 degree angle with their butts in the air. And the champagne bottle is turned every day, like a centimeter, like a tiny, tiny bit. And what this does is over time, it helps collect the lees, which are the dead yeast cells in the neck of the bottle. And that's when right before put the real cork in, the one that we all know and how to open it, they do a process called disgorgement where they freeze the neck of the bottle where all of the yeast has gathered, the dead cell, the lees, and it freezes it into a pellet. The pellet pops out and they pop the cork in. I mean, let's put up videos. We're going to do videos of this process because it's absolutely insane. And also, I'm going to post a video of the right way to open a bottle of champagne because this shit is dangerous. That cork could move at 90 miles per hour. You could lose an eye. You really should take precaution when opening champagne. Open field's the best. We're also going to get into sabering. If you've never sabered a bottle of champagne, super easy. People think you got to be a psalm to do it. My cousin could saber a bottle of champagne Y'all, it's been real. Champs for my real friends. You're my real friends. We are starting to break down champagne. Mythbusters, we're busting down doors. We're kicking the door. I'm just going to listen to Biggie all my way home. I am your host, Helen from Helen's Wines, the Gem Box Little Wine Shop in Los Angeles. But 
We exist in a virtual world. So you can visit me, helenswines.com or follow me on Instagram at helenswines. If you are not in Los Angeles, good news for you. If you're in California, we ship everywhere. Join the wine club. The other thing you can do though is subscribe to our newsletter. It's on the homepage, helenswines.com. And I'm trying to make it accessible for no matter where you live in the country or even in the world. Also, please subscribe, rate, and review Wine Face. I would love to hear from you. I'd love to hear your thoughts. It just makes the world go around. So thanks, everyone, and pop that bub.